0: All right. Well, we're continuing in Daniel. We're in Daniel 5 this week. And if you remember, last week I gave kind of the overall structure of the book of Daniel. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize is that chapters 4 and 5 really constitute the heart of the book of Daniel. That's the central message in chapters 4 and 5. And I don't know if you got a chance to read chapter 5 before you came tonight, but There are some pretty amazing similarities between what happens in chapter 4 and what happens in chapter 5. So both stories are concerned with a revelation made to a king. For Nebuchadnezzar, it's a dream that's sent to him. And for Belshazzar, it's words inscribed by hand on a wall. In both stories, both kings call for their enchanters and their Chaldeans. And in the hopes that they will be able to interpret the revelation that they receive. And in both cases, Daniel is only brought in after that bunch has failed and has not been able to interpret what's going on. In both accounts, Daniel is described as one in whom is the spirit of holy God. That's mentioned in both chapters. Both accounts deal with the humbling of a proud king. Both stories show Daniel's interpretations coming true. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, both accounts deal with rulers learning that Most High God rules their kingdom and that he sets over it whomever he will. They serve him. He does not serve them. They serve Most High God. But the difference, some of the differences between the two stories is where I want to focus our attention tonight as we look at chapter 5. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us tonight, that we would be receptive. I pray that your Spirit would help me to make my words clear, to make the points clear, And that as we leave, we would have a strong and solid conviction of what it is that you have to say to us through your text tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start verse 1. Verse 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now this kind of comes out of nowhere. So the end of chapter 4 was the end of Nebuchadnezzar's letter that he sent throughout the whole empire where he's extolling and praising God. And the very next thing that you read at the beginning of chapter 5 is that King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them. And it's it's almost like we've stumbled into this party that we weren't invited to. We end chapter 4 and here's chapter 5 and there's this big party and there we are. And certain questions quickly come to mind. So who is Belshazzar? Who is this guy? Is he Nebuchadnezzar's immediate successor? Or is he further down the line? And how many years later is this story? Does it take place shortly after what happened in chapter 4? Is this many years down the road? Some of our questions are answered if we take all of chapter 5 as a whole. If you consider the thing as a whole. At the end of the story... Belshazzar is killed that very night. He's killed that very night. And Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. So this story comes at the very end of the Babylonian Empire. If you remember when we talked about chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. The Babylonian Empire would be first in a series of four kingdoms, four empires. After that would come the Medes and the Persians. They're the chest and arms of silver. So what we're seeing in chapter 5 by the end is the Babylonian Empire giving way to the the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Now between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, there are probably about four other kings uh, between the two. So in the first four chapters of Daniel, we get all about Nebuchadnezzar, who's the first king of the Babylonian Empire. And then in chapter 5, we get the last day of the last king of the Babylonian Empire. And we don't really hear about anybody in between. So then that begs the question, how old is Daniel at this point? If there have been, if Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a long time, he reigned 43 years, and then there were four other kings after him, how old is Daniel at this point? Well, Babylonian empire lasted about 66 years. And so it's reasonable to think that if Daniel was about 18, by the time, uh, when he was exiled to Babylon, There's good reason to think that Daniel was somewhere in his mid-80s when this story takes place in chapter 5, which means the story that we're going to look at next week in Daniel 6, where he's cast into the den of lions, that's even after this, because that's when Darius is king. He's probably closer to 90 at that point. And you know, if you think, if you've seen Christian art of, of Daniel in the lion's den, he's probably pictured as a young man, but he was probably Close to 90 at that point in that story. But here he's probably in his mid-80s. And he's seen the long reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's seen successors come and go after him. But he's also known that this empire, the Babylonian Empire, was just the first of four that were to come. And we shouldn't think that Daniel is isolated and away from all the news of the world. He, He hears what's going on. He knows what's going on in the world. And he knows when armies are gathering and when armies are near. And he keeps biblical prophecy in his mind, too. And he weighs news of world events and what's going on around him. Okay. Now, when Daniel enters the story in verse 13, we have to remember he's not the brand new exile of chapter one. And he's not the about to be executed youth of chapter two who comes in and tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation. This is somebody who is well-seasoned, who's wise, who's attentive, and he's waiting to see God's next move. All right? Does that make sense? All right, back to the text. So the ESV says that Belshazzar holds a feast. The literal term is that he, he made a great bread. It's a very odd term but that, that Belshazzar made a great bread, okay? That sounds weird, but we'll come back to it later because it's actually pretty significant. Just keep in mind that he, he holds a great bread. Okay, so now that we've stumbled onto this great bread of Belshazzar, we should ask, what's going on? Is this a celebration? If so, what's this a celebration for? If it's not a celebration, then what is actually going on and why has he gathered a thousand lords together and why is he drinking wine in front of them? Let's continue. Verse two, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, so let's start with the return of these vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember, at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And in chapter 1 it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So those vessels are, are brought to Babylon, they're locked away, and we kind of forget about them for the next couple of chapters. But now, in chapter 5, they're back. And, they should, uh, and Belshazzar has trotted them out like a defeated enemy in front of all his lords, wives, and concubines. And this should remind us of when the Philistines captured the ark and thought it would be a great idea to take it back with them. And they found out very shortly afterward that that was a very bad idea to take something of God's and parade it in their own place. Now, this seems like a festive occasion. They're drinking wine, and he's got a thousand of his lords and such. But there's good reason to believe that this is not a festive occasion for Belshazzar. Because we know by the end of the story that he's killed, and that Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. And this suggests that at the same time that Belshazzar is drinking wine with his lords and his wives and his concubines, Darius and the enemy are probably nearby. They're probably at the gate. So why are, they drinking, why are they drinking wine and acting like this is a party? Well, it's a move of desperation. It reeks of desperation. They are, they're holding this festive occasion because Belshazzar knows that his only play is to make a royal show of things And to call upon every god that they possibly can. Remember, it says they called on gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That covers the whole gamut of materials of gods that they can pray to and cry out for help. Okay? Um, So they're calling on anybody and everybody to come and help them. It's a desperate move. It's not a party. It's a plea. And they drink wine because wine is the drink of kings. And because wine makes people merry. And the gods do not like frowny kings, and they don't like frowny lords. And so they are treating it as a festive occasion. And as a reminder of what their gods had done for them in the past, they bring out the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem to kind of pep themselves up and to remind themselves of what, how, God, how the gods have helped them in the past. Does that make sense? So we've got Belshazzar throwing a great bread. We've got Darius the Mede probably at the gates or nearby. And we have the vessels from the temple paraded forward like a conquered enemy. Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So Belshazzar sees the fingers of a disembodied hand writing on the wall. And we're reminded, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that the hand is a symbol of power. The hand is, is symbolic of the authority to rule. And it turns out that Belshazzar is not the only one who has a hand. There's another hand that appears and starts to write on the wall. Now textual detail, the writing occurs opposite the lampstand, it says. This is not a random detail, this is actually significant. Remember that the vessels from the temple were brought out and they were set up. It's highly likely that the lampstand that's mentioned here is the lampstand that was in the temple. It was in the most holy place. And so that should make us think, okay, what was the lampstand for? What's the lampstand doing in the holy place? How did it function? Leviticus 24 tells us that there were 12 loaves of bread on a table opposite the lampstand in the holy place in the temple. And the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel, which was the kingdom of God at that time. And the lamp would shine, or it would keep watch, on the bread on these 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now the kingdom of God is this fourfold empire that's developing. That's what God has set up. It's God's new house. And we already know that God pays attention to how his empire is ruled, because remember last week, the watchers told Nebuchadnezzar that the watchers have paid attention to how he rules and that he needs to change his ways. So God pays attention to how the rulers are ruling within his empire. And now, again, what's this feast in literal terms? What's it called? It's a great bread. And so you have the lampstand shining on this great bread. Just as the watchers had been watching Nebuchadnezzar, the lampstand is shining on this great bread and finds it false and makes an immediate judgment on Belshazzar and his kingdom. Verses 6 and 7 say, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king calls loudly to his enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now, we might be tempted to think that in seeing this ghostly hand um, he has this extreme reaction, which admittedly, it would be weird. I, I don't know how you would react if you saw a floating disembodied hand starting to write on the wall. Um, I think there would probably be a sense of awe of experiencing something that you would not expect to experience, something that's very otherworldly. But this is this is a very extreme reaction by Belshazzar. So um, this is a man who is completely undone. <clears throat> I won't go into details, but his limbs giving way, his knees knocking. This this is the Bible's discreet way of saying that something unpleasant happened in Belshazzar's pants. And I I brought a commentary to show anybody who wants to see that that's that's probably what the, the text is saying. And I didn't write it. So why this severe reaction? It's a very extreme reaction. Well, they'd been praising numerous gods, and now one has shown up. So it's possible that Belshazzar didn't actually think a god would show up. Or he thought that if a god came to help them, the god would just make Darius go away. And they wouldn't, have to, they wouldn't have to fight. But now this hand has shown up and is writing on the wall. So Belshazzar figures, whatever this means, it's not good. This is not good for me. Here's a message I can't read and understand. Darius isn't going away. And so this is bad. And the wise guys get dragged in once again. And and we already know from the pattern that they're not going to be able to figure out what it means. They're not going to be able to read the writing. They're not going to be able to interpret it. And only Daniel is going to be able to do it. So, verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Okay, so who's this who bursts into the scene? It says that she's the queen, but in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense because he's already got his wives and his concubines with him in the feasting hall. So it doesn't seem likely that he would have them and then not have the queen if he actually had a queen. Um, In your ESV, there may be a little footnote at the bottom that says, Or Queen Mother. And the thought is that this is probably his mother. She's the queen mother. Um, It's not actually a, uh, a queen. And it's interesting that she's not present at this feast. She's not partaking of this desperation move. There's no reason to think that she wasn't invited. But she's not there. She's not part of this worship of numerous gods. She knows the stories about Daniel. She knows the things that Daniel did in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And not just what he did, but also that he had an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. So she knows that about him. Uh, There are several good reasons to think that the queen mother was possibly Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Or at any rate, if she wasn't his daughter, she was at least very close historically to the time in which Nebuchadnezzar reigned. And that she either personally witnessed these things that Daniel did or that it was just very well known at the time. And she's known for a long time who Daniel is and what kind of character he has and how he's been blessed by God. Um, And so she knows these stories. So continue, uh, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the God is in you, He, he offers to make him third ruler in the kingdom. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had made Daniel second in the kingdom. So at some point after Nebuchadnezzar died and had successors, at some point among those successors, Daniel was kind of laid to the side, kind of kind of lost that position of being second in command. He's, he's almost all but forgotten. He, he reminds us of Joseph, who's brought in from the dungeon in Genesis and who appears before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. Um, Belshazzar offers him the same rewards that he had offered the astrologers and the Chaldeans. And in verse 17 says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel has no interest in being promoted to third in a kingdom that's going to fall that night. It's like being named the CEO of Kmart or Blockbuster or something that, is, that has no future. He doesn't want to be the third ruler in something that has no future. But Daniel also knows that God wants Belshazzar to know the message. He wants Belshazzar to know it, and only Daniel can reveal it to him. He can read the words, and based on what he knows of God's working in history and Darius poised to strike, And Belshazzar's arrogant display with the vessels, Daniel gives an interpretation that's not based on direct revelation. It's not something he directly receives from God, but from prophetic wisdom. Daniel is able to, he knows the past, he knows what's going on in the present, and out of that, he is going to give Belshazzar's future. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So Daniel confronts Belshazzar about his pride, and reminds him how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. It says, your father, the king, again in your ESV, there may be a little footnote that says, or predecessor word can also mean predecessor, so not necessarily his biological father, but a predecessor in the line of kingship. God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his pride, and Belshazzar didn't learn from it. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar's story of being humbled would have been common coin throughout the whole Babylonian empire, because he wrote it in a letter, and he sent it through the whole empire. Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody in the empire to know about how he had been humbled And about how God was God most high. So Belshazzar certainly knew the story. There's no way that he didn't know the story. But he had not learned from the story. He had not learned from Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He had not internalized and lived from the knowledge that godly rule is close to heaven. Like the head of gold. And he had exalted himself in pride like building the tower of Babel. And had, had tried to elevate himself and exalt himself. And a tower like that has to come down. Belshazzar should have learned from the cautionary tale that Nebuchadnezzar had left him. And instead, in his most desperate hour, when he most needs God, he and his lord's wives and concubines call out to every other possible god. Gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They call out to all the others. And they don't call on the one god that could actually help at the time. Instead, they parade the vessels out like a conquered enemy. Verse 24, Daniel continues... So the explanation of the words is, are fairly straightforward. Uh, mene is mentioned twice, and Daniel doesn't say exactly why it's mentioned twice. The word mene conveys the idea of reckoning, of, of counting something up and assessing it and reckoning it. And so the first mene is basically saying to Belshazzar, here's a reckoning. Okay, here comes a reckoning for you. The second mene means you have been reckoned. Then tekel... You have been uh, weighed in the balances and found wanting. So you don't weigh enough to still be king, is essentially what he's saying. You're not weighty enough to still be king. And thus, your kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. He's going to lose the kingdom. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar will not get a second chance. Nebuchadnezzar got a second chance. He was restored to his kingdom. Belshazzar will not be sought by his lords and restored to the kingdom. He will not have more greatness added to him like Nebuchadnezzar was. In fact, he's going to die that very night. But that doesn't mean that he can't repent. It's too late for him to remain king, but it doesn't mean that he can't repent. So, verse 29 Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So, Belshazzar rewards Daniel for reading the writing on the wall. And Daniel surprisingly accepts the rewards. Not long before, Daniel had said, keep it, I don't want it, it's no good. Why does he receive them now? I think the reason is that Belshazzar's response to Daniel's words um, indicates some humility on Belshazzar's part. If, if Belshazzar didn't like what Daniel had to say, he maybe could have had him killed, uh, he could have had him thrown in prison, but instead Belshazzar rewards him he gives him the he's clothes him in purple he gives him the chain of gold around his neck and he makes him third in the kingdom and so I think uh, it's too late to save the kingdom but it's not too late for Belshazzar to repent and so because of that uh, Daniel accepts the rewards and he's made third in the kingdom for as long as it will stand which is not very long because verse 30 says that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. We're not told how, and we're not told by whom. It's very possible that some opportunists in his own kingdom took his life, maybe to make friends with the Medes and the Persians who were coming in. Uh, But with his death, the Babylonian Empire comes to an end. The head of gold is now given way to the arms and chest of silver, the Medes and the Persians. And verse 31 more properly fits in the story of Daniel 6. Um, in Hebrew Bibles, it's in chapter 6, and so we'll leave that until next week when we talk about Darius the Mede. So um, I really have one point of application out of tonight's story, and it's this We are accountable to know and live by our story. We are accountable to know and live by our story. Belshazzar may not have realized it, but he lived within the story of God and his people. And part of that story of God and his people included Nebuchadnezzar and how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. And Belshazzar didn't learn from that. We have to learn from our biblical predecessors. We can't have all the experiences ourselves, and nor do we want to. Um, Consider that Nebuchadnezzar was the first king in this Gentile empire, okay? And it seems like because he was the first king, God dealt mercifully with him. Even though he was puffed up in pride, God exiled him for a time, but then he let him be restored. And out of that humbled repentance, he sent a message throughout the empire extolling God and what God had done for him. So that lesson had been learned by the first Gentile king. Belshazzar then was accountable to learn from that. He didn't need to have that experience again because Nebuchadnezzar already had it. And so Belshazzar should have learned from it. He should have known where the boundaries are. He should have said, I can't be puffed up with pride. I already know that what happens when a king is puffed up with pride. And Daniel, this is the thrust of his message to Belshazzar. Daniel says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. There will be no second chance for Belshazzar because the lesson should have already been learned. And I think this communicates to us that we're accountable to live in accordance with our story. We're accountable to know our story and to live within it and to learn from it. Here's a New Testament example. Consider Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, right? He hears Gabriel tell the wondrous news of how he and Elizabeth are going to have a son after years of barrenness. And what does Zechariah reply? He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. It's a bucket of cold water all over this good news that the angel Gabriel is given. And as a result, and as a penalty, Zechariah has to remain mute until John is born. Now Mary is also visited by Gabriel, and she's told that she's going to have a son, the long-awaited Messiah. And she replies, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now does she get the mute treatment? Like Zechariah does? No, she doesn't. She also asked, How is this going to happen? So why doesn't she get the mute treatment? Well, the reason is because Zechariah was accountable to live by the story that he knew. There was a long history of God providing children through barren people. And so when, when Gabriel came and gave the news, Zechariah should have said, A child for a barren couple? You mean like Abraham and Sarah? Like Isaac and Rebekah? Like Jacob and Rachel? like Hannah, like Samson's mother, until eventually where Gabriel says, yes, I see that you get it. I see that you get the point. We're accountable to know our stories and to live by them. We see the three young men choosing the fiery burning furnace over participating in false worship, and we now know where the bar is, right? We don't go under the bar. We know where the bar is for us. We see Peter deny Jesus, and we know what we absolutely cannot do. We see the Lord washing his disciples' feet as an example, and we know that we are not beyond the basin and the towel. We're not too good to wash one another's feet. We're not too good to serve one another. We see Jonah sulking in anger because God didn't destroy 120,000 people. And we know that it's not our place to be flippant about human lives, especially the lives of people and people groups that we've never met. Jesus says to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, when you read the scriptures, are they inspiring words on a page or are they transforming the way that you think and that you live? Are you acting in accordance with what you read? We're told that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in us. Well, then we need to reject any idea that suggests that we live by our own power. If we really believe that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, we have to reject all ideas that say we operate according to our own power. We may not feel any different, but our feelings may just be due to weather and digestion and just whatever else is going on. No matter, the resurrection power continues to flow quietly through our lives if we really believe that that power is in us. We read Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, our minds, all that we can imagine, even when we're in top form, all that we can think or imagine, cannot fully grasp all that God can do. And we're accountable to live that way. It means we're accountable to not put restraints on what God can do. In our lives, and in the lives of each other, and in the lives in the world around us. We're not to get locked into our notions of what God can and can't do if we live by the story. And living accountably to the story changes everything in our lives. It changes how we see our everyday circumstances. So if I see a stranger sitting in a car and feel a prompt from the Spirit to go talk to him, how do I know that that's not an Ethiopian eunuch reading from the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot? Because there's a, there could be a link there. I sing and pray with members of my home fellowship. And when I do that, do I realize that this very thing was happening in the wake of Pentecost, in, in homes all over the area? 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen says, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. That's what we do on Tuesday and Wednesday nights in our home groups. We do the same thing. It's been going on for 2,000 years. All four of our children are baptized and partake weekly in the Lord's Supper. And they affirm that they're part of God's story and not part of the world's story. But I have to realize that their baptisms and their participation in the Lord's Supper means that I need to keep my story for them in check. Because I can be tempted to have a story for them. But I need to remember that they belong to the Lord. I'll close with this, kind of related on that note. There's a retired pastor and bishop named uh, William Willimon. He served for 20 years as dean of the chapel at Duke University. And one day he got a he got a call from an angry parent and the angry parent said, our daughter came to Duke to get into medical school and become a doctor. And now she's got this foolish notion of teaching kids in Haiti and it's your fault. And Williman said, why is it my fault? And the father said, because she listens to your sermons and what she hears is given her these ideas. But she's supposed to become a doctor and not a teacher in Haiti. And Willimon said, well, hold on a minute. Is your daughter baptized? And the father said, yes. And Willimon said, and and she told me that she went to Sunday school all through her youth. Did you take her to Sunday school every Sunday? Losing confidence, the father said, yes. Well, Willeman said, this is all your fault, really. (laughs) Baptized, Sunday school. She was plenty messed up before she ever came to us. We only work with what we get. If you want to complain you'll have to take it up with their third grade Sunday school teacher. So once you're baptized and part of the story, and you're participating in the story in an ongoing way, there's no telling what foolish ideas you're going to have. That's, why, that's how we live when we're accountable to the story. Amen. Amen. All right any, uh, any thoughts?